Romans chapter 12, uh, today and next week, we'll be finishing up what we've been talking about with spiritual gifts, and then we'll do a study in birth of Christ, Christmas, and then we'll come back to the book of Romans in the new year. We've been talking about gifts, we've been looking at aspects of spiritual gifts, I want to read these verses again, and then we're going to talk today in a broad sense, about the second category of gifts, which is the serving gifts. And so what we've seen as we've gone through here, that there's basically two broad categories to the gifts. One is the speaking gifts. One is the serving gifts. And some of them are enumerated for us in the verses that we read here today, again, beginning in verse 5. So let's look at them together, and then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Romans chapter 12. You remember this chapter began with the appeal to us to present ourselves to God. Living sacrifices. Not to be conformed to the world. Not to be pressed into the mold of the world, but to be transformed by having our minds renewed. And then he begins to talk about the perspective of the renewed mind, which is how we appraise ourselves. And so he told us there in verse 3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think realistically. And then he begins to talk and develop this idea of spiritual gifts. And he says in verse 5, so we, although many, talking about the church, though we the church, many are still one body in Christ. Spiritually, this is a spiritual reality. Christ is the head of the body. And each part of the body has a function. Together we are integrated into the body of Christ. And we are given a role from him. And so though members, we are one body, though many, we are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members of one another. <coughs> Having then gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith is service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's look together to the Lord in the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, as we come before it today, and we reflect on our Savior, his life, what he taught us by both word and example. Lord, help us, your children, to see the high road of being a servant. Lord, help us to serve one another, to serve our community to have a disposition of heart that isn't just looking out for ourselves and our own good and our own rights, 
the Lord is looking to the advancement of your kingdom by stooping low to meet the needs of those around us. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're talking about the two broad categories of gifts. The speaking gifts, which really are falling under the category or the heading of the gift of prophecy. And we talked about the gift of prophecy, what it is, what it isn't. And then we'll see as we bring this together next week that the other two gifts that are speaking gifts that grow out of the gift of prophecy are teaching and exhortation. And we'll talk about them in greater length next week. He then goes, so he, he mentions prophecy and then he mentions serving. And he says, if serving, if serving is your gift in our serving. There again, that's the broad category. Underneath it, in the listing, there are different ways that we serve. We may serve by giving. And if we serve in a way that we are giving and we are contributing, he tells us to do it how? Generously. We may serve others by leading. And if we lead in service, then we are to do so with zeal. We may serve others with gifts of mercy and compassion. And if we do that, we are to serve them cheerfully. And so that's where we'll go as we look at these. Now what I want to do is look at the broad category of service. He says here, in your serving, if serving, then in your serving. What does he mean by that? Notice that phrase. It almost seems redundant. And when we read it, we wonder what he's saying. He says, if service, if service is your gift, in our serving. What does the phrase, in our serving, modify? What does it refer to? It refers back to what he already told us when he talks about grace. That grace is given to us. And that that grace is bestowed upon us as a gift from God to be used in ministering. And so he's falling back on that and he's saying, if you have the gift of service, don't just do it in the flesh. Don't just serve others in your own abilities and according to the natural man. Serve in the power of God and by his grace. The very same thing that he said in 1 Peter chapter 4. When he tells us there, if we speak, we are to speak as it were the very oracles of God. And if we serve, we are to serve with the ability that God gives. So we are not just to serve one another in our own strength. We are to rely heavily upon the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to be prompted to serve one another. In the next part of this chapter, there are very brief sentences that end up really telling us what this looks like. Notice what he says beginning in verse 9. Let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold tightly to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor for each other. Do not be slothful in zeal. 
Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. So we contribute to the needs of the saints. We show hospitality to each other. We are zealous for one another. We outdo each other in showing honor to one another. All those things really characterize what it means to serve the Lord in the power of the Spirit. Our Lord, Jesus Christ in His earthly life, was our prime example as to what it looks like to be a servant. He modeled it. He washed the feet of his disciples in the upper room just hours before his death. He taught on it often. In scripture reading this morning, Keith read a passage where Jesus was teaching his disciples about being a servant. I want you to go to it. Let's look at it for a few minutes this morning in Mark chapter 10. And I want to spend the rest of the message this morning in just a broad way thinking about being a servant. What does it mean to be a servant? What is Jesus talking about in this passage when he is instructing his followers about true greatness? Now, Keith read it, and I'm not going to read the whole thing again right now because you already got it in your mind, but I want us to think about what's going on here. To begin with, I want to start a little bit earlier than where I had Keith read this morning. I want you to begin looking with me in verse 32. Mark chapter 10, look with me in verse 32. It says in verse 32, they were on the road. And they were on their way to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, everything is going up to it because of the elevation of the city. And so they are on the way. They are going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is out in front of them. Think about, that's the reality, but think about what's going on there. Jesus is on his way to his death. And he's out in front. He has set his face like a flint. He is going with purpose. He is leading them there. He is out in front of them. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They are going to condemn him to death. They are going to deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and they will kill him. And after three days he will rise. What an amazing announcement. Jesus in his omniscience there knows exactly what is going to happen. 
He gets down into the details of it. He doesn't just say, I think I'm going to get killed when I go to Jerusalem. He says, I am going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed there, but these things are going to be a part of that. They're going to mock me. They're going to flog me. I'm going to be killed and on, after three days I will arise. Now think about what's just happened there, what Jesus has announced to them. <clears throat> In the gospel, this is the third time that Jesus has announced his impending death to his disciples. Each of those times that he does it, in the passage, in the Bible, it is coupled with an incident. An incident that reveals that his followers are oblivious. They are oblivious to this fact and they are preoccupied and saturated with a delusion of their own importance. Think about what we just read. They were on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus says, I'm going to be killed there. And right on the heels of that announcement, James and John come to him and say, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, would you seat us on either side of you on thrones? Think of that context. Think you're going in the car and you're having a conversation as a family and you bring up something that's really difficult. And all of a sudden the kids come out with something that doesn't relate in any way and is only about what they want for lunch that day at McDonald's. They just were oblivious. They missed it all. And here in this passage, you can literally see that the disciples are just checked out mentally and spiritually. They are not thinking about what Jesus is going to experience and what he is going to suffer. They are thinking about themselves. How like us. That is the immediate context. After that, notice this. Jesus is going to have an interaction with these people on the issue of leadership. And he's going to talk to them about worldly leadership and kingdom leadership. And that interaction that he has with them is prompted by two things in the passage. He's going to say, notice what he says at the end of this. He says, you know, notice with me in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever is great must be your servant. That teaching in the passage flows out of two things. The first one is this, the question by James and John. Now, who are James and John, the sons of Zebedee? They're twins, brothers, come from Galilee where they were fishermen. You remember in the passages, Jesus had met them on the Sea of Galilee. They're mending their nets, and Jesus says to them, come follow me. Peter and Andrew come from the same mix 
Those two guys, these two brothers, come to Jesus with a question. And I want you to notice this. They come to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He says to them, well, what do you want? Well, what do you want? They say to him, grant us to sit. One at your right hand and one at your left. Notice this phrase, in your glory. In your glory. And Jesus said to him, to them, you don't know what you're asking for. How many times does Jesus say that to us when we ask him for something? Because we are looking through the eyes of our own flesh so many times. We are thinking about self. We're not thinking about his glory. We're not thinking about his kingdom. We're thinking about me. What makes me feel good? What makes me comfortable? What will make my life better? And we simply ask selfish prayer requests. In James chapter 4, James says, You have not because you ask not. And then he says this, And then you ask and you don't get it. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may just saturate your own flesh. How many times do we do that? Even innocently and inadvertently. But it's really a revelation of our heart. I don't think James and John are thinking of themselves when they do this the way we're thinking of them. I don't think that at all. I'm sure in some way they have justified their request. We've been with Jesus the longest, or whatever the case may be. And they don't see themselves what they really are, which is just completely delusional when it comes to self. The question was spurred by something that Jesus had said. In Matthew 19, Jesus says this. Jesus says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in the new earth, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus has told them that. Jesus said, you guys who followed me, my apostles, are going to sit on 12 thrones and you are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. These guys then come to Jesus privately and say, when you come in your glory and you set out the thrones, would you make sure that we're right next to you? They are maneuvering. The request is really one of worldly ambition to set themselves in leadership over the others. So what's going on here. Now the second thing that prompts Jesus' teaching is how the disciples respond. How do the disciples respond when they hear this? Or they just kind of like, oh, James and John, yeah, you probably should have those seats because you really are pretty close to Jesus. How do the other guys think of it? Just the way we think of it. 
Right? What does it say in the text? He says, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were ticked off. And when the ten heard it, they were hot around the collar. When the ten heard it, they weren't thinking very highly of James and John. They were indignant. Think of the word indignant there. That speaks of deep displeasure. It is the very same word that is used earlier in the chapter when the disciples were keeping the little children from coming to him. And Jesus said, let the little kids come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And it says there that Jesus was ticked off at the disciples. He was indignant. It's interesting. Jesus gets ticked off when kids are kept from him. When a culture, when a church, when anything would try to distort and destroy the minds of children in such a way that they could not come to Jesus, Jesus is ticked. Jesus doesn't take that sitting down. He says, allow the kids to come to me. What ticked the disciples off? When there was a threat to their prestige. When there was a threat to their position, they get indignant. So Jesus calls the whole bunch together and he teaches them a lesson. This is a lesson he will reinforce in just a week when he washes their feet. When he washes their feet, he will illustrate to them servanthood. Here, he teaches them about it. And he contrasts the way the world leads with how the kingdom is to lead. Worldly leadership entails force, subjugation, dominance. It is about self-seeking and ambition. Kingdom leadership is humble. It is self-effacing. It is servanthood. It is God-glorifying and has as its ambition the meeting of needs of others. In the Roman world, this is foolish. Just like it's foolish today. Jesus says to them, whoever would be first among you must be a slave. The slave of all. 
Thank the Lord that slavery was abolished in the United States of America. We don't see it. It doesn't mean none of it's going on, sadly. But slavery was abolished. In the Roman world, these guys saw slaves. A few weeks ago in Sunday school, we were talking about Hinduism, and we were talking about India, and we were talking about the untouchables, a pariah. A slave in the Roman world was like an untouchable. They were expendable. You used them, and you were done with them. They meant nothing. And Jesus says to his followers, and then Paul takes this as the main title for himself. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He views himself as a slave. In our world, the world tells us make a name for yourself, doesn't it? Do whatever it takes. The world tells us it's fine to be sacrificial, but be sacrificial so you get ahead. It's all about you. In the kingdom, it's all about God and his glory. And meeting and caring for the needs of others. There are three quick lessons in leadership I draw your attention to in the text. And then we'll close. The first one is leadership is demonstrated. True leadership is demonstrated in a servant attitude. The second thing you see here is leadership in the kingdom is sovereignly bestowed. He said, this is for who I have prepared it. It's not mine to give. It is prepared. And then I want you to notice with me that kingdom leadership entails suffering. It entails suffering. Let's look at them real quickly, and then we'll close. The first one is this. Leadership is demonstrated in a servant attitude. Think with me about the reality that God's most useful servants or God's most useful servants have always come from humble means and have always sought the good of others. Think of some of the people that God had that he chose to be his men. Think of the twelve. Think of who they are. They are chosen by him. Think of the Old Testament. Think like Mo, men like Moses. Think of David. Think of David who is a shepherd caring for sheep. He is called by God to be the king. The New Testament is replete with examples of this. That leadership in the kingdom is demonstrated by a servant attitude. The words here are diakonos and a doulos, a servant and a slave. The, the posture of a servant is central to Christianity, to the New Testament offices of a minister and a deacon. 
We are to be servants. How do you know when you're truly a servant of Christ? Do we need human approval? Do we need human recognition? Does it just take the encouragement of others to keep us going all the time? Or do we do it for the Lord? Do you need everyone to know what you were doing? Or do you just faithfully do it for Him? Do you invest your time and resources in the lives of others? Not caring if anybody knows? Or do you expect the time and resources of others to be only invested in you? The posture of a servant. You know, we need to, I think, cultivate in our children, by the way, from when they're little, cultivate in kids a servant's heart. Amen. To take initiative. When, when you see something that needs doing, you do it. Kids, when you're going through this building, when you see that a light was left on, you turn it off. When you see there's garbage on the floor, you stop and pick it up. You know, take the initiative to serve. You know, in two weeks we're going to have the, the young people um, doing all the various aspects of the service, doing the offering and leading in the singing and all those things, trying to help them to see that it is important, it is vital that they serve the Lord. And so, in your home, kids, don't just make your bed because mom and dad stand over you and make you do it. Make your bed and then help your mom make hers. Take out the garbage. Do the work that needs done and do it happily and with joy in your heart, not just for mom and dad. Do it for the Lord. And so it should be with us. We need to cultivate a servant's heart. Being a servant, we need to walk in the Spirit. I want to be careful when we think about this that we don't just think about incessant labor. Think with me of the story of Mary and Martha. Martha had a servant's heart, and she was serving and serving and serving, but she didn't have time to spend with the Lord. And the Lord did not commend her for that. <clears throat> we need to be careful. And one of the things I want to say here, when we talk about being a servant, we are talking about a disposition of heart and life. We are not telling you, I'm never going to tell you, to make yourself a slave to the whims of every person in your life or every cause that is out there that could monopolize your life and set your priorities for you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not telling you to live a scatterbrained life by just be doing things all the time for other people and then you trash your own life and you don't take care of your own kids. That's not what we're getting at here. We're talking about a disposition of heart that causes you to think of others and to serve. But to still set priorities, to still look carefully at needs, and to walk in the Spirit in such a way that you involve yourself in causes and ministries 
that the Lord has laid on your heart. Not just that somebody else tells you you need to be doing. That's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about a disposition of heart. Leadership is demonstrated in a servant attitude. Leadership is demonstrated or is sovereignly bestowed. Jesus says in these verses, it is for those for whom it is prepared. God has sovereignly bestowed on each of us a place of influence in his kingdom. And he expects faithfulness on our part. We don't all have the same gift. We don't all have the same calling. And God has sovereignly given you aptitudes and enablements that he wants you to use for his glory. Don't be looking at other people and wishing you had their gifts. Use the gifts that God has given you for his glory. My place in the body of Christ has been determined by God for his glory and the good of others. It is not for self-advancement or self-promotion. The last thing that we see in the text is leadership entails suffering. Jesus talks to them about a cup and a baptism. Jesus says to them, are you able? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am drinking? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is here speaking figuratively. He's talking about being immersed in suffering, the suffering of the cross that he has just mentioned to them. Jesus drank the cup of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God on the cross when he suffered for our sin. He was baptized when he was immersed in suffering. And Jesus is pointing them to that. He says, you don't know what you're asking. James and John, I think kind of flippantly like Peter when he says, I'll never deny you. James and John kind of just flippantly reply, of course we're able. Jesus says, can you drink this? Can you be baptized? Oh, sure we can. You know what? They did. James, the guy we read about here, was the first of the 12 to be martyred. King Herod in Jerusalem cut off his head. John was the only one of the 12 who was not martyred, but nevertheless, he suffered heavily. And when you get to the end of the New Testament, he writes the book of the Revelation. He is writing it in a penal colony, the island of Patmos, where he has been exiled for his preaching and his testimony of Jesus. They suffered. They didn't know what they were saying. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're getting into. But in faith, they followed. And they did suffer. Now, notice what it says at the end of this, and then we'll close. Jesus says of himself, in verse 45, 44, 
Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of everyone. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And, and notice this phrase, to give his life as a ransom for many. He had told them just minutes before that he was going to Jerusalem where he would suffer, where he would die, where he would be buried, he would rise again. But his suffering was not for any wrong that he had done. Jesus was suffering as a ransom in a redemptive way that we may be restored to God and made right with him. He was a ransom for us. He goes to the cross in our place. He pays the penalty that we deserve. And what you see here is the suffering of Jesus has a redemptive value. And so it is for us in the kingdom. God doesn't just bring suffering in our life in order to be mean to us, in order to get back at us. God doesn't bring difficult times just so, you know, he can show us that he's in charge and he's the boss. God allows suffering and brings suffering into our life as Christians with a redemptive purpose. That through the suffering, through the baptism, the cup that we drink, that is in harmony with what he suffered, that through our life there is a redemptive value that is placed before others for us as followers of Christ. That the life, the death of Jesus is presented to others on a platform of the life of his followers who follow him in difficult things. The life of a Christian is not a bed of roses. Jesus is clearly telling them there. To follow Jesus means to die to self in every way. It means to take up the cross and to follow him. So Jesus calls us as his children, as the church, to true greatness. But that true greatness is not seen in all the things that the world thinks of as greatness. It is seen in the deeds of service and care that we do for others. So that Jesus says, he that gives even a cup of cold water to a little child in my name, it will not be forgotten. I'll never forget once. I was in Cheyenne, and I'll close with this story. And they were arguing about a bill in chamber in, in, in one of the committee meetings, and we were there to testify with the Wyoming Pastors Network. There were some, you know, big wig attorneys from back east who were with us from Alliance Defending Freedom, a guy named Austin Nimicks, who is one of the lead counsel with the group. Great guy, was there to testify. These guys were doing a great job. And on this other side of the aisle were 
those who were arguing for gay marriage. And there were several rows. Some of them were clergy. Some of them were attorneys. Some of them were mothers and men. And they were arguing passionately their cause as we were arguing passionately ours. And it had been a very long day. And a woman on the opposing side, a lesbian woman, was going to get up to testify at her seat. And she got up and sat down in front of the committee and she began to talk. And as she was talking, she had with her like a three- or four-year-old little boy. And he began to be extremely naughty and was stealing the show, and everything she was trying to say was kind of being completely downplayed by her child who was just throwing a temper tantrum. And I'll never forget watching this guy, high-dollar attorney from Washington, D.C., a guy who's argued in the Supreme Court, Austin Nimitz, a solid born-again Christian, got up from his seat and he went to the cooler and he got a little cup of water. And I know he did that specifically. And he went and he stooped down and he picked up that three or four-year-old little boy and sat down behind mom and gave the little boy a drink while mom made her testimony, and the boy completely settled. And I don't think mom was thinking about anything she was saying at that point. I think everything she was saying was being run through the filter that a Christ follower who was on the opposing side of the argument and had argued passionately for what was right and what was true, had just come to her and served her child. That's what Jesus wants from us. When it's not easy and it's not convenient to show love. So as Jesus served, as Jesus was a slave, so must we. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace. Lord, you know many times, because your spirit lives within us, you know how many times we do things with mixed motives. We give to get. We serve that we might put ourselves on display, whatever the case may be. Father, forgive us. Help us to follow our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him in such a way that even when nobody would notice, even when no one would give recognition, we wouldn't do things as men-pleasers with eye service. No, we would simply serve you from the heart because we love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.